Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Julia Serrano about her new book, Sexed Up, How Society Sexualizes Us and How We Can Fight Back. Serrano is an activist, performer, and acclaimed author of Whipping Girl, Excluded, and other books. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Time, Salon, and Miss. In Sexed Up, Serrano argues that sexualization is a far more pervasive problem than we might recognize. She explores such questions as, why do we perceive men as sexual predators and women as sexual objects? Why are LGBTQ plus people stereotyped as being sexually indiscriminate and deceptive? Why are people of color still being hypersexualized? Serrano offers not only a clear-eyed understanding of how sexualization occurs and the harms it creates, but she also offers ways of leading us out of these dynamics toward a more kind, humane, and sex-positive future. Julia Serrano, welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm very glad you're here, and I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, Sexed Up, How Society Sexualizes Us and How We Can Fight Back. Um, and be- before we even talk about the, the ideas and the insights in the book, um, a lot of the book comes out of your own experience. And I was wondering if you could take us into the book by talking about its origins, um, Part of the, one of the threads that runs through the book is you sort of sorting out your own experience um, and then using that as a way to illuminate our, all, all of our experiences. Um, so if that seems like a fruitful place to start, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that would be great. Um, so, yeah, so I uh, the book comes out of a personal experience that I had, um, particularly stemming from about 20 years ago or so, um, when I transitioned from male to female. This was a time, this is the early 2000s, so there's not a whole lot of trans awareness out in the world. Um, And so I had this experience where um, basically over a six-month period of time, I transitioned um, in such a way that I went from people reading me as male um, to people reading me as female with a little bit of period of time in there where um, it was actually kind of a coin flip whether people would read me one way or the other. And uh, so I had that particular experience, which was very surreal. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of trans people have similar type of experiences. I also had another set of experiences, which is I was suddenly uh, moving through the world as a younger woman, um, who experienced a lot of the, the same things from strangers, um, such as, you know, street remarks and sexual harassment and, and so on, um, being read as a, as a cisgender woman moving through the world. But I also had this whole other complete set of experiences where I was a very out person. I was doing a lot of, um, I was a musician, I was a spoken word artist, and I would do like slam poems where in the middle of the piece I would come out as trans and try to have people question their worldview of gender by doing that. Um, and so I had the experience of people knowing that I was trans, and when they knew that I was trans, uh, they would sexualize me, but often in very different ways that 
than what I experienced when they presumed that as a cisgender woman. Um, and I talk about this in the book. Um, there are a bunch of different stereotypes, uh, including like being viewed as sexually deviant or predatory or um, as promiscuous or as desperate or undesirable or exotic or as a fetish object. And so I was experiencing all these different forms of sexualization and they all felt connected to me. And a lot of the experiences I had specifically as a trans woman actually have a lot of parallels with other marginalized groups and other marginalized women. And so I kind of wanted to delve in to try to figure out um, why we have this tendency to sexualize people in different ways and why the kind of effect of it, it tends to have an invalidating effect. Um, often when you reduce someone to being a sexual being of one type or another, um, it has a delegitimizing or degrading effect on them. And so I was also interested in trying to figure out why that was. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of us who write... Um we have these experiences and then we want to figure out in, in a more robust way, like what actually happened, what was happening. Um, and there's a, a wonderful feel of that in the book of like, you know, here you are up on stage and, and suddenly people start to shift the perception of you. And then, you know, they're encountering the way that your, your body moves through the world differently than they did moments ago. And what, what's going on with all of that? Um, and what, one of the, the things that I so much admire about your work is that you bring this level of clarity and insight, um, even down to the, the level of definition of terms and things. Um, so maybe, maybe that's a good place to start. I think a lot of listeners would, would say, oh, you know, sexualizing other people, I have a sense of what that means, you know, and they might think about like, childhood beauty pageants or something like that. Um, but could you start us off with a, a definition of just this key idea of sexualization? Like, how do you define it in the book? Um, and then we could start to talk a little bit about how it operates. Sure, yeah. Um, and I should say I'm coming from this from an angle of uh, <clears throat> a feminist standpoint, like feminists have used the term sexualization in particular ways. It's since been kind of appropriated by people who I would describe as bad actors. For instance, there are a lot of people out there nowadays who will accuse trans people or LGBTQ people of sexualizing children. And they're using it in kind of this whole separate way as part of this um, part of this tactic of, you know, smearing us as, as quote unquote groomers. Um, so I'm using it kind of in a feminist way, which a lot of feminists were trying to get at why there's this delegitimizing or, or degrading effect that it has on people. And so I, the definition that, that I boiled it down to, which differs a bit from other people's, is that sexualization occurs um, when we non-consensually um, view someone, um, or let's say this, <laughs> when we non-consensually reduce someone to their sexual attributes, um, so their bodies, behaviors, and desires, whether real or imagined, um, to the exclusion of other characteristics. So instead of viewing me as a complex person who has all sorts of different traits, um, it basically involves reducing me to just being a sexual being. 
Mm, yeah. So it's it's a movement in the opposite direction of, say, humanizing someone and recognizing the full spectrum of their being. Um, yes. And there's definitely well, oh, there's definitely a dehumanizing element to it. Um, I should say the, the way in which my definition uh, is a little bit different from some people is I put the word non-consensual in there. Um, there's a lot of feminist debate over sexualization that kind of veers into the realm of well, what happens if you're with a partner consensually and they're, you know, reducing you to a sexual being, but it's in a specific situation. And I get into details in the book about that. Um, but I, I think it's important to stress that it's non-consensual. And um, I also expand the definition a bit because a lot of feminists will write about, you know, when a woman is reduced to being a sexual body. And that is certainly one way that sexualization takes place. But some of the other forms of marginal, uh, sexualization that I describe faced by uh, marginalized groups, um, a lot of those don't involve being reduced to body, but a lot of times it's people imagining that you have particular desires or that you're predatory um, and so on. So that's why the real or imagined sexual attributes kind of broadly is um, why I went with that particular part of the definition. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And there, I think there are moments in the book where you're taking up, where it seems like audience shifts. You know, there, there are moments where you're you're talking to debates in uh, feminist scholarship, and I think other moments where you're you're speaking expansively to intersectionality, and there are moments where you're speaking to uh, the experience of of just about everyone across the the sex, gender, and sexuality spectrum. Um, and yeah, I think it, it, I want to put that out there because it, it attests to the range and, uh, the vision that I think is behind the book. Um, yeah, and, and I, I do want to uh, thank you for saying that. And that was definitely very purposeful in that, A, I think that, you know, a lot of us in different ways in our lives experience sexualization. And so I wanted to, um, account for all of them, um, to talk about all of them. And like you said, in an intersectional way, I also wanted, this is something that impacts everyone, even if, you know, like sometimes we're sexualized as individuals, but sometimes we tend to sexualize other people. So I think it's a book that, you know, impacts everybody's lives. And I really wanted it to be as accessible as possible. So I do sometimes go down uh, little digressions of, you know, a particular feminist debate, for instance, about like objectification, or I might talk a little bit about um, one of the later chapters, I talk about the concept of paraphilias, which is this sexology um, construct. And that that I have, I find to be very problematic and very not well thought out. And I, I delve into that. So sometimes I have these digressions that are in more, uh, venture into more specific subfields, but I always try to keep it accessible um, so that someone who doesn't have that background knowledge um, can understand what I'm saying and see where I'm going. Yeah, and I'm just gonna add to that, but so so to take the example even of the, the discussion about paraphilias, one of the, the tasks that you set for yourself and do in the book is to demystify that kind of language so that it doesn't hold this faux authority that, you know, essentially that's just another way of using the rhetoric of perversion in a scientific flavor or, or, or veil. Um, and so 
what I've often found in this and in, 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 in the work that you do in your blog um, is taking some of these debates that seem to be field specific and then making them accessible to the rest of us and showing us what's actually at stake within them. Um, and one of the places you do that is one of the main concerns of the book. There are, are different uh, terms for in psychology and um, in other academic fields for what you end up calling mindsets. And, um, and so a lot of the way that sexualization operates, as you laid out in the book, is that we have these unconscious mindsets that shape our perceptions of, of sex and gender and sexuality. Um, could, could you start to take us into that? Because that's, that's where the, at least the first two thirds or so of the book uh, spends its time. Sure. Um, and I like right from the start of the book, I, I kind of forefront um, perception and interpretation. I think when we think about sex and sexuality, you know, people will start thinking about bodies or some people think about like, oh, how we're socialized and all that all that stuff is real. <laughs> um, but particularly because of my situation of being the exact same person. And then all of a sudden within a six month period of time, people thinking wildly, making wildly different assumptions about me. I really wanted to get into perception and interpretation and kind of in my reading over the years and, and there are fields like social psychology or cognitive psychology um, and so on that, that look into how, say we categorize people or unconscious biases that we have that sort of shape how we see the world. And I felt like that's where a lot of this was coming from. Like, I think that there are definitely instances where someone who is sexist will like sexualize a woman and it'll be kind of part of, you know, their part of like an expression of prejudice from them. Whereas I think in most cases, a lot of times uh, this is coming from unconscious um, biases or mindsets. Um, and I, I settled on the word mindset because it was um, pretty generic. And I think most people understand when you say, oh, a mindset, it's like a way of thinking and it's not necessarily conscious. Whereas like an individual subfield, sometimes they might be called schema or they might be called biases. So I went with mindsets and basically I, I highlight, uh, I think, five different mindsets throughout the book that are just unconscious ways in which we see the world often because we're socialized to see the world that way, or in some cases there might be more general human biases in there. Um, and, and I really wanted to highlight that. So um, I, I introduced these mindsets um, one by one in a lot of the early chapters, and then it becomes really clear how they all come together um, as, as the book goes on. Yeah. They begin to, you begin to show how as they pair together, they become in some ways more restrictive in what you can perceive and what you can interpret. And then, you know, to the extent that sexualizing someone is, is damaging all the more damaging as a result. Well, would you exactly. be able to, to share with us? Yeah. I mean, you start with the, the two filing cabinets mindset um, as the, the way to begin. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, and, and this is the first chapter of the book and it particularly talks about my experiences during my transition of being, um, moving through the world, being perceived as male to moving to the world, being perceived as female. And when I was about to begin my transition, I really didn't know what personally to expect other than I figured that there'd be this period of time, 
where I'd be in like a gender limbo where people wouldn't be able to figure out if I was a boy or a girl. Um, and I had a couple instances like that, but much to my surprise, what I found was people would almost always make the determination that I was male or female. It's just that their determinations often differed from other people in the exact same room. And so I describe a lot of anecdotes that I had, including ones where, you know, I was having a conversation uh, where, for instance, someone who um, knew me as male before I transitioned and wasn't aware that I was transitioning introduced me to someone else, um, to another uh, man who he was very flirty with me. And I could tell because of what I was going through at the time that he was reading me as female, but like my friend didn't pick up on that because from my friend's point of view, like we all obviously know that we're three guys talking together. And there are lots of situations like that where people would read me one way or the other. And they really believed whatever their initial determination was, that's what they believed and that's how they viewed me. And it was really hard a lot of times to convince people in the other direction. So like another anecdote is um, I'm going to vote and I have to show uh, the woman my ID. Or I, It starts out, yeah, I show her my ID and she's trying to find me in the um, on the rolls, on the, the, the voting registry rolls. And uh, she says she can't find me. And I'm like, look, my name is right there. And she was just kind of confused because it's like a boy name, but you're obviously a girl. Um, and so kind of the conclusions that I came out of that is that first and foremost, we don't really see people, we see men and women, and that's kind of how we're socialized to see the world and becomes really, really unconscious. And, um, if the fact that we, you know, automatically categorize people as male or female, obviously this has implications, you know, for trans people and non-binary people, creates a lot of obstacles in our lives. But more generally, if we categorize people in one of these two ways, if it was categorizing like alphabetization, where, you know, things that fall under the letter A aren't seen as being fundamentally different from things that fall under the letter L or the letter R and so on. Um, rather, when once we make that determination, it really shapes um, a lot of the assumptions that we place on people. And it also, uh, it results in us filtering out other aspects of their person. Like once I transitioned, there were aspects of my person that people couldn't really see anymore that they used to react to. Yeah, that's, that's really illuminating. And, and I guess as I was experiencing how these anecdotes and your own personal experience arise in the book, it's, it's, at least twofold. It's on the one hand, you are the object of, of various people's focus. And that puts you, especially as you are transitioning in this position to, to see how people are perceiving you that what would otherwise perhaps go invisibly for, for other people becomes visible to you. And, and therefore you're seeing these mindsets in operation, especially when they get tripped up. And then at the same time, because you've had these experiences of, of being socialized male and then entering into a female world and also being in a queer world, um, that you have this position in which you can see how some of the 
the dominant ways in which we gender and sexualize people operate as well. Um, and so it, it's almost like you're this, this rare place in which you get to see things and you get to experience things both as the person being perceived and the, the perceiver yourself. Um, and that becomes a, a very rich part of the book. Yeah. Th- yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, like I said, it was, it, a lot of my transition and the ways of being read differently, it was very surreal. And I think part of the reason it was surreal is not just how dramatically people treated me, which I knew obviously people would treat me different. Um, but, uh, but it also, as an observer, it was very surreal to watch it all play out in front of me. And yeah, I, I came away from that not only with anecdotes about how people treated me, but how I observed everyone else. And the book was, you know, the book came out last year. I transitioned a long time ago. Uh, So it's been something that I've been working on for a very long time, kind of thinking through all that and trying to make sense of all that. Yeah. Well, one of the the things that you say surprises you um, as you you conclude the book that that comes out throughout the book is the relationship between sexualization and stigma um, and how those work. And I was wondering if you could take us into that, you know, what is stigma and what does that have to do with sexualization? Sure. Um, And that was something that was really, I had most of the ideas in my head when I was starting to write. And I find that every time I've written a book, there's been like one idea that I wasn't expecting to be a big part of the book. And it, it came through the writing. A lot of times when you're writing about something, you're thinking about it. Um, and, and you know, as you're writing, you're like, oh, I'm stuck here. What I'm saying doesn't make sense. And, and all of a sudden, the pieces kind of fall into place. Um, for me, stigma came out of um, trouble I was having at a certain point, a few chapters into the book, where uh, the, the main framework for sexualization that, that feminists have put forward is objectification. And so the idea of objectification is, you know, you're reduced to the status of a sexual object and that can have a dehumanizing effect on you. And while I think that all that is certainly true and that is one framework that makes sense of a lot of forms of sexualization, it, there were a lot of other forms that it didn't really make sense. If someone views you as sexually deviant, whether it's because in my case, I'm a trans person, but you know, if, if someone calls a woman a slut, that's not necessarily re- reducing her to her body. That's basically saying that she's sexually deviant. Um, so objectification doesn't really work in certain cases. And uh, the more as I was working on it, it became clear that stigma um, is another model that really made sense. And once I had latched onto that, I realized that it actually explained a number of different things that I wasn't actually going to delve into in the book, uh, but all made sense. So for stigma, most of us understand stigma in terms of like, you know, I think a lot of us equate it with shame um, or embarrassment. And that's certainly true. If you're a member of a stigmatized group, um, you know, that stigma that impacts you. But there's also a lot of research into how a lot of people... Uh, assume that stigma um, can spread from person to person. Um, and, and there's a term uh, called contagion, 
that's a form of magical thinking where people feel like even a brief contact with a stigmatized object or a person can like permanently contaminate or corrupt you. And so, and that makes sense from the standpoint of like a lot, a lot of that work is in if you're say a trans person, particularly in a world where trans people are really stigmatized. If, if you hang out with trans people or you're, you know, too closely associated with them or you become intimate with a trans person, people will view you as having been kind of like contaminated by that, experience. And I realized that actually the way that we're socialized to view sex um, is tied together with stigma. Um, It's almost as if we're socialized to view sex as a a stigma contamination event. Um, And I think for people who are viewed or likely to be viewed as um, sexual beings in one way or another. There's this uh, stigma that's kind of associated with it, which we might feel from people reducing us to being a sexual being. There's stigma associated with that, but also other people might view us as um, potentially being contaminating or contaminating other people. Um, I think that this is really obvious, and I go into this. There's a chapter where I go into how LGBTQ plus people are viewed. And just there's a lot of reactions that sometimes straight people will be worried that like, you know, that one of us might make them gay or that, you know, their own genders will be compromised in some way. Um, And so, and you can really see it nowadays with, uh, there's this um, idea that like transgender identities are spreading via social contagion, which is something that in in independent writings, um, I have critiqued, but the, I think the reason why that, um, resonates with people is because of this unconscious idea that either sex or people are seen as especially sexual, um, can have this contaminating effect on others. Yeah. Yeah. I, I first encountered the the, the framework of stigma experientially like you did when several years ago I was diagnosed with cancer and when people would find that out, there was this magical thinking around um, cancer, you know, is this horrible thing that just being in the proximity of someone that had cancer was uncomfortable, that you could somehow, you know, be affected by it and that the word was scary to say, don't say it. Um, and it, it, I couldn't really make sense of it. it. There was a similar experience that you had of, um, you know, two days ago before I was diagnosed, I would have this sort of interaction with person A, and then I would let them know I have cancer, and suddenly person A would, you know, almost back off as though there were a contagion um, that could be caught. And uh, yeah, and then later when I came out as non-binary I saw sometimes the same dynamic and I was like oh that's what's going on um, so I appreciated very much the chance to see it so well thought out and uh, explained in, in your book um, yeah I, I, I think, think in, oh, just yeah, to please. touch on that example it's uh, kind of interesting that you said that so in a, a, uh, my second book excluded which I don't get into stigma there uh, the the really the stigma kind of grew out of kind of later writings and particularly sexed up. But I do have a passage in there um, where I'm talking about, and this is um, one of the other mindsets I talk about in the book. It's the unmarked versus marked mindset um, where some people are viewed as marked in our eyes. Um, 
and stigmatized groups tend to be be marked. And if you're marked, like some people who are unmarked, it's kind of the taken for granted default status that people view you as normal, natural. And then if you're marked, you're viewed as remarkable or questionable or suspect in some way. And when I was writing that chapter and excluded, I explicitly compare what what to me felt very, very similar. Um, I was in one work environment when I transitioned and, you know, it was, it was, everyone was uh, great with my transition, but like there's kind of almost this uh, after coming out that people acted a little bit weird if I talked about being trans, like they kind of felt like, oh, well, it's this thing. And that's, that's, we're not going to talk about that anymore. And then like a couple of years later in a, a different workspace, um, I had cancer. And when I kind of came out to everyone about having cancer, it's very similar thing where they're like, oh no, I'm so sorry for you. And then let's not speak about this ever again. And <laughs> so your analogy or, or anecdote uh, very much resonates with my experience. And yeah, I, there definitely is a, a stigma contamination uh, mindset working there. Yeah. And, and this is a wonderful example of, of one of your methodological approaches in the book. Um, there's a term for it you use, and I won't get that exactly right, but you talk about a way to, to kind of do activism that starts with people's lived experience in relatable ways that allows for intersexuality to happen. So there's a kind of top-down model of theorizing big things like ableism or racism um, or anti-queerness or something like that. But then there are these experiences that like people with cancer have and people who have transitioned have and people who experience, you know, sexist remarks on the street walking home have that that have this intersectional nature to them. Um, and this book's very interested in in working politically on that level of you know, here are these ways that that all of us are experiencing the the degrading and dehumanization parts of, of being sexualized and you can see how they operate um, with race in one instance or how they operate as we're talking about with illness in another one. Um, and it creates this, I think this capacity for empathy and connection um, that I find very powerful. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you feel that way. And that was definitely something that the top down versus bottom up, came out of um, excluded in a way of, uh, especially because I feel like a lot of times within activist settings, we get really kind of focused on um, talking about specific isms um, that exist, that are real. <laughs> and, you know, and then kind of forms of the word identity politics is used by different people in different ways, much like the word sexualization, but um, in identity politics where, um, the difference between, you know, like me being trans and someone else being cis, um, that that's kind of another one of these hierarchies and everything gets framed in these particular ways. And those can be very useful for articulating uh, some things that happen. But I feel like there are some things that get lost from that. And so in Excluded, um, I forwarded the bottom-up approaches, which is starting out kind of at the level of double standards or biases or mindsets, um, and trying to, from that way, draw parallels between like what generally happens 
when prejudice or marginalization occurs, um, which kind of creates um, potential bridges for us to say, oh, well, you know, we may face different isms, but actually kind of how it plays out in our lives sometimes is very similar. You know, we're invalidated in similar ways or similar tactics are used against us. And so, yeah, and, and sexed up, I didn't really talk about the top, the top down versus bottom up <laughs> until uh, the last chapter of sexed up, but that was in my mind going into it that I wanted to, to, to do a more bottom up um, approach. And again, I, I, I make it clear in both excluded and sexed up that these are, are complementary approaches. Um, I think both are necessary. And from those frameworks, they both illuminate certain things that you don't see otherwise. And I would love to touch for a second on one of those um, that comes out of the, the mindset of the, the marked unmarked uh, that you had mentioned earlier, um, which I'm sure as people read this, they'll all sort of have the moments where they're like, oh, that explains this. But I found the, the analyses you did of, of phantom invitation of the phantom invitation that comes with being marked and how you become a public spectacle as a way of, of making sense of, you know, street harassment and things like that, just to be so illuminating. I, I wonder if you'd be willing to share it with listeners. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so once again, from a, a feminist standpoint, a lot of times sexual, sexual harassment or what are sometimes called street remarks that women experience, a lot of times that gets framed through, you know, either looking at it in terms of sexism or specifically sexual objectification, which a lot of times it most certainly is those things. But I wanted to draw parallels that I, that for me, there were huge parallels between kind of those experiences I would have and the types of experiences I would have when people were aware that I was trans, where it was a certain amount of like entitlement to comment about you or to question you in ways that I never experienced back when people viewed me as male, but also when people viewed me as, as cisgender. Um, and I also talk about in that chapter, I kind of, I, I have some of the anecdotes that I experienced um, once I was moving through the world as a woman and some of the ones I experienced as a trans person. Um, where people felt like it was okay to, you know, comment upon me or even touch me sometimes. And then I had this other experience that I call being a sub-liberty, um, which is a phrase a friend of mine came up with for someone who's like a celebrity within a particular subculture. Um, so like I, nobody, for the most part, people in the world don't know who I am, but within certain like queer or, or feminist or trans settings, people sometimes know who I am beforehand. And they also will act that way in those spaces too. And obviously it's very different from being seen as a celebrity to being seen as a marginalized person, uh, but they both involved being marked where it's like people feel like it's okay to, uh, people feel that it's okay to like just approach you to comment about you, um, they get offended if you don't acknowledge them um, in those situations, even though they can be annoying when you're on, on the receiving end of that. And I realized that they have those connections, which is that you're seen as someone who's marked and people who are marked 
are often viewed as asking for any kind of attention that they receive. Um, and it that helped me make sense of people's reactions where, um, like, it, I didn't understand when I was first moving through the world and, you know, men would make comments as I was walking by, but some of them would get, get really upset that I didn't acknowledge their remarks. <laughs> and it's just like, that didn't really make any sense to me, but it does make sense if you realize that when you're a member of a marked group, people imagine that you're sending out phantom invitations um, and that you are a public spectacle that they can comment upon. And I, I feel that it really helps make sense of a lot of different people's experiences. And a lot of us, even if you're not a member of a marginalized group, you might be marked in certain ways. So for instance, like before I transitioned, I was very small for, for being a boy. And so my whole life, I would like walk into a room and like, it would be like, wow, you're really short. And it was very bizarre that people would just like make just all these comments or they, they, even if they weren't like trying to put me down, they just like, they had to like talk about it. And, uh, I, I had a, a coworker who I once had this great conversation with, and she was a very tall woman and she was like, I get the exact same things. And we were telling our stories and basically they're very similar in that any room we walked into, I was the shortest boy or she was the tallest woman and people react in these awkward ways and it plays out differently for every person um and given any every particular trait you know every i'm not trying to say everything is the exact same but there are these common themes that come up over and over and over again that i was trying to um really get across in that chapter on the unmarked mark mindset yeah and just to thank you thank you for that answer and and just could we circle back again to like what it means to be marked, right? Because here we have a whole bunch of, of different examples of, you know, in certain circumstances, just being short if you're perceived as male could make you marked or just being tall if you're perceived as female, being someone who wrote a book. Um, so in some ways, the way that marking operates is that there is a perceived norm and anything that's outside of that norm is marked. That's not quite right, though, right? Because it's, it's ah, yeah, help me out. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah. And so I don't think that there's like a clear line, but kind of the way that I think of it is there's some things that are taken for granted. Okay, so, you know, there's particular hair colors that are taken for granted, right? And so if you're walking down the street and you see people with brown hair or blonde hair or, or, or black hair or whatever, you won't necessarily think about that. But then you see someone with red hair or blue hair, like they kind of jump out at you. Okay. And so I, th I think that that's, I think the underlying aspect of it is probably just kind of the way humans are programmed to view the world. But um, there's obviously cultural aspects to it too, in that um, when I go into queer spaces where a lot of people do have blue hair or red hair, like you don't notice it because <laughs> it, within that cultural setting, it's normal. Whereas in other cultural settings, it might be marked. And so I think there's that aspect of it. But then uh, some marked traits are highly stigmatized in our culture, whereas others might not be stigmatized. For example, if you are a celebrity, um, you're kind of like glorified or you're seen as more special than everyone else, even though you're marked. Um, and then there are some traits like, you know, 
if you have a different hair color, like people might be like, oh, like surprised about your hair color, but they won't necessarily look down upon you or treat you poorly because of it. Um, so sometimes things are just marked, whereas other times they're associated with a lot of um, stigma, right? So like coming out as trans and like people are like, oh, you're trans. And then all of a sudden, like they'll treat you in a completely different way. It's not just that you're different, but there's they're sensing something more from that um, that is likely related to stigma. And I think kind of understanding the difference between just being marked versus being like someone who has a stigmatized mark trait, I think helps to make a distinguishing aspect between say, you know, what is it like being kind of like a relatively short boy or tall girl, right? Like those are things that are marked and you might get a little bit of um, flack for it, um, but it's a little bit different. It's not like culturally viewed as people view they have the right to like stigmatize you. So I hope that distinction helps. Um, but I do think the fact that a lot of us probably have a marked trait or two, something about us that's a little bit different. And if you feel a little bit annoyed that people always bring to attention this aspect of you, um, for people who have a, a, a marked trait that's stigmatized, it's like that kind of on, on adrenaline, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it gives you a window to imagine the experience if you can amplify your own. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, well, there, there are so many things that, that you do in the book, um, and there are these other mindsets that, that you look into, um, you know, the way that once those filing cabinets are established, do they create opposition, um, or the, the predator-prey mindset, or the, the mindset that establishes a kind of fetishism. Um, but I do want to do justice to the book and make sure you're, you also begin to, to think through and lead us through some alternative ways of thinking that, that mitigate or start to move outside of the way that sexualization operates. Um, and I'm hoping we could talk a little bit about those um, before, we, before we finish up. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I particularly find as someone who enjoys food, the way that, that you begin to talk about desire um, through this extended metaphor of, of how we think about food. Uh, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing that. Sure, yeah. Um, I think, and, and this comes out of like one of the strategies I put forward. Um, and, and this is in the, towards the end of that chapter, I talk about it as moving beyond like viewing like aspects of, of sexuality or sexual desire as being either good or bad. Um, obviously, there's non-consensual aspects, and and that kind of is its own, under its own realm that I discuss as, as a separately as a separate kind of category. But um, moving beyond the idea of seeing, uh, you know, sexual desire as good kinds and bad kinds, um, and that's actually the chapter where I, I talk a bit about par paraphilias, which is the scientific construct that like some people are viewed as having normophilic sexual desires. So if you're a man who's attracted to a woman, like that aspect of your sexuality is seen as normal. Um, whereas for a long time, um, homosexuality was seen as a sexual deviation or a paraphilia. Um, and then there are other aspects. Some of this comes out of if um, 
you're cisgender and somebody's attracted to you, that's kind of seen as normal. Whereas if you're transgender and people are attracted to you, people often assume that they have a fetish and there are actually like literal paraphilias that people, um, sexologists in the research literature have named for people who find trans people attractive, which if you are a trans person, um, that's very, you know, highly problematic. Um, and so on. And so uh, I think it's really important for us to recognize that there's diversity in what and whom people find attractive um, and desire. And so I use, I'm not the first person to use the food versus um, sex uh, comparison or parallels, um, because there are some very obvious parallels there where both, you know, food and sex are kind of like vital for the species. Um, but kind of our interest in them, uh, you know, most of us, particularly in, in, in our culture, most of us are privileged that we don't have to, we don't think about food as necessarily just for sub for sustenance. We think about it often as, Oh, what foods do I desire? Like what, what, what meal can I eat right now that I would be really, um, excited about. And I think that that's kind of a lot of how like sex and sexual desire works where, you know, most people, when they're having sex, they're, you know, I guess there are some instances where people are like, Oh, we're going to try to make a baby tonight. But the vast majority of sexual experiences that people have, usually you weren't thinking about reproduction. You're thinking about, Oh, you know, what, what makes me feel good? What makes my partner feel good? And so, I talk about it if if we viewed sexuality akin to how we viewed people's uh, palates with regards to food, um, that that's kind of like a healthier way of looking at things. So when I tell people, you know, I don't like mustard, um, nobody freaks out about that. <laughs> like, how could you not like mustard? Um, whereas, uh, like, we so we accept a certain amount of um, diversity in palates and that we don't assume that every person likes the exact same foods we like. Um, and so that's like one way of kind of um, considering uh, this kind of, you know, it's a difficult subject with regards to sex and sexuality because there is a lot of stigma associated with it. And if we're also in a world where, um, we're maybe socialized to like sexualize certain types of people to like reduce them to being sexual beings. Um, and sometimes those are tied to particular like hierarchies that exist. Um, so I think there's a lot to navigate with regards to sex and sexuality, but with regards to just the desire itself, I think it's important, uh, not to, um, to, to, I, I guess the way that I put it in, in the book towards the end is, you know, like, it's important for us to foster sexual equity without reducing or, or getting rid of sexual diversity. Um, so I think that that's an important goal that I tried to convey, particularly towards the end of the book. Yes. And, and I think this, this metaphor is a wonderful way to illustrate that because you know, you're able to talk about desire and preference. Um, you know, this happens in the part of the book where you're discussing sexual utopias and dystopias and you're rightly cautious about the idea of sexual utopias in fact there's a, a really funny line of you wouldn't want to live in most of them that you've read about um, neither would i 
Um, yeah, and so just the the idea of like you know people will ask, well, can this be done? Is it possible to do it? And you're like, hey, we already do it with food, right? That if you're enjoying mustard on your sandwich, that doesn't mean that the person next to you who's you know, having a salad has to flip out. You know, we eat different things in public together as a culture all of the time. Um, and, you know, nor do we force other people to eat our salad if we don't want the salad or the, you know, sandwich if we don't want the sandwich. So there is this way in which um, we have a model for accommodating difference um, and desire without feeling the need to overly police or reduce or exclude um, that's already functioning. And I think that's one of the things that um, you point to at the end that's so refreshing, you know, that the queer community, for example, you, you highlight gives us a model in which a lot of these mindsets, people have, have worked through them um, both on a cultural level and an individual level. And so, you know, is it possible to get outside of predator prey mindsets? And you kind of say, well, you know, I go out and I see that all the time, right? <laughs> um, when I'm among my friends. Uh, so maybe if we, if we could hit on one other one that, that you offer the readers that I think is, I would love to, to share here, which is a, a recent term, um, recent like decade or something like that, 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 uh, that people have been using to talk about gender dynamics and sexual dynamics is this idea of scripts, that there are these cultural scripts. Um, and it's a very helpful metaphor. You know, scripts have expectations, they have roles, they can be evoked and people can feel the pressure of them, um, you know. And so you offer this this wonderful idea of, well, well, hey, what if we just actually communicate about going off script? Um, that's something that we can say very easy, that we can use very easily to signal that I'm, I'm not interested in, in these mindsets. I'm interested in moving off script. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about, about how that came to you and how you see it operating? Um, because you draw some wonderful parallels to music um, as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, the idea of sexual scripts has been around for, for a very long time. It, it was basically, a, it started out as, I, I believe, a subfield of, I think it was sociology. Um, I think like it might have been the 1970s. In any case, that idea has been around for a while. And that idea is... For instance, if, if you're unfamiliar with it, um, an easy way to explain it is, say you're going on a first date kind of in like the heteronormative world, you're say a teenager going on your first date, well, what do you do? Well, there's there's some ideas you pick up from TV shows and from watching other people. Like it's like, oh, well, you know, well, of course, you know, the man asks the woman out and there are certain things that you can do or certain things that you don't do. And like, it, there's sort of a, you know, if, if, if you bring someone flowers, like both parties know what that means. So there's basically, they described it as a script in that like all the beats are there. Um, and it's a way in which it might seem at first that it makes things easier. Um, but it actually makes it more difficult to do anything that's not in the script. Um, it makes it assume that if you do something that is not in the script, that that's like a bad thing. <laughs> um, and the script is very, you know, it's obviously very heteronormative, but it also has a lot of messed up ideas. In addition to being heteronormative, it has a lot of uh, 
messed up ideas about women and men built into it. And so as someone who, you know, after I came out in the queer communities and I had a lot of sex positive feminist friends and partners and within like sex positive communities, you come up with language for like navigating, you know, well, you know, there's no script. <laughs> there's no cultural script for like your two women together dating or your two trans people together dating. Um, so the way that you work through that is you just you you become highly aware of like each other's, you know, you're, you're explicit about like, you know, boundaries and what you feel comfortable with or what you're interested in, um, in a way that doesn't evoke the type of shame that it might if you're not familiar with that. And so that's a very complicated thing, a complicated way, you know, to go around saying, oh, we should just do the thing that sex positive feminists have been doing. <laughs> um, and so I came up with the idea of going off script because it's obviously a play on, you know, the uh, it's obviously a play on, you know, the the sexual script, the theory um, that's behind that. But it's also it immediately brings to mind improvisation. And like an example I give is if uh, you're you're doing improvisation, uh, there's there's some rules generally built into that where you know there are um, if you're improvising with someone you're trying to collaborate with them right so if you were trying to do if you were like in an improv comedy troupe and you ignored what other people wanted or what other people were trying to do and you just did what you wanted to do it like would go like really really horribly and everyone would think you're a jerk <laughs> right and that's kind of how like sexuality works like you have to kind of collaborate with your partners and in that chapter i, I uh, use and I, i'm i am blanking on uh the name of the title of the person who came up with this uh it's an essay uh, from the book Yes Means Yes, which is a um, really good anthology, feminist anthology about enthusiastic consent. And uh, the the author talks about a performance model um, where, you know, like people will often, if, if people view a woman as like she's had sex with other people, there are some people who would say or think that like, oh, well, she should have sex with me or, um, you know, because she had sex with other people, or they might look down at her for that. Um, and and uh, he points out, the author of this piece points out that we would never do that with regards to music, right? Um, if, if somebody played in more than one band, you wouldn't call them a music slut, um, nor would you assume that that person wants to play with you like, you, you know, you would have to negotiate that. It's like, oh, well, what style of music are we playing? What time signature are we in? And so forth. So um, overall, that's just kind of a general way to think more about sex and sexuality in terms of um, collaboration, which I think is really important. We talk a lot about consent and consent is very important, but, uh, but collaboration is really, really crucial um, and that's something that I try to forward there. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I am mindful of the time and where we were at, where we're at. So I, I also just want to thank you not only for this this illuminating book, um, but also for the the continued activism um, and insight that you offer through your blog and through your medium posts. And I would encourage anyone listening. Um, to go and find those in the 
the kind of clarity um, and moral moral center that you're bringing to what's happening right now with all of the anti-trans legislation um, and the the arguments that you're making and the insights that you're making that allow at least for a pocket of sanity amid all of that. So thank you very much, Julia. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you for being on the New Book Network. <laughs>